And then there's Leroy Smith. Now, you got to think that's a myth. Leroy Smith was a guy, when I got cut, he made the team on the varsity team. And he's here tonight. When you watch Michael Jordan's 2009 NBA Hall of Fame accepted speech, of course, you can't help but notice the past grudges and slights that he gives credit to in his mind for fueling his competitive fire. I wanted to prove not just to Leroy Smith, not just to myself, but to the coach who actually picked Leroy over me. I wanted to make sure you understood you made a mistake, dude. A lot of people joked about it, claimed that maybe it wasn't the most appropriate or gracious of speeches. None of us should be surprised, though, knowing Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael Jordan, without exaggeration, may be the most competitive person that has ever walked planet Earth. I'm sure there's some gladiator from ancient Rome we don't know about, but for now, we'll go with Jordan. But watching the speech, what sticks out to me is there's not really a great single rival from Michael Jordan's career. I mean, you think of Muhammad Ali, you think of Frazier, you think of Foreman. You think of Messi, you think of Ronaldo, Bird, Magic, Russell, Wilt. But who does Michael Jordan talk about? He talks about Brian Russell. And Brian Russell came over to me and said, you know what, man, why'd you quit? Why'd you quit? You know I can guard you. You remember this, John? And... There was never that player, the guy who can match him shot for shot, dramatic dunk for dramatic dunk. But there could have been. Bias from outside, and he got it. His name was Len Bias. Oh, my! And he made the steal in a jam! I was watching college basketball at the time he was playing for the University of Maryland, and he was breathtaking. His teammates called him horse due to his freakish athleticism. A 6'8", muscle-bound Adonis with a 40-inch vertical leap who could handle the rock like a point guard, hit the boards like a power forward, and attacked the rim with violent dunks that were rivaled only by, well, Michael Jordan. Jordan was the better all-around player, but Bias had more size and better range. And the gap was closing fast. By the night of the 1986 draft, fans like myself, I remember I was a freshman in college, we were salivating to see what the Bias-Jordan rivalry could become. The Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. Len Bias would be picked second, one spot higher than Jordan had been drafted two years earlier. There he is, Len Bias. By the world championship Boston Celtics. Len was sitting by his mother. She is here with him. Bias was poised to become the next great NBA star and help Jordan transform the league into a high-flying cultural phenomenon. It was happening. He had a great career at Maryland. Many people think he may be the best athlete in the draft. Two days later, he would be dead. Well, he certainly has to be about the happiest man. I'm Adam McKay. Welcome to Death at the Wing. In tonight's episode, we look at one tragic night and see how it would change public policy in America for decades to come. Time goes, you know, time goes. Guys get older, they get more playing time. The between him and being the number one pick today was about three inches that he forgot to go.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I was in my 20s when uh, Len Bias died. I was 26 years old. I was a really young reporter for The Globe. And Len Bias was the closest thing to a slam dunk as a draft pick as any player in recent memory. He was a surefire thing. That's Jackie McMullen, the all-time great sports writer, whose career was just getting going back in 1986, the year Bias was drafted. And she remembers what a seal he seemed for the Celtics at the time. Len Bias, for better, lack of a better way of putting it, checked out. It wasn't just Bias's talents on the court, which were generational. He was also a good guy, someone teammates loved and someone the organization could invest their future in. The Celtics even had private investigators following them around because that's what people did. They, they had private investigators before they drafted a player very high in the draft. They, they did their due diligence. And he was a good kid from a great family. See, the Celtics had lucked into the second pick in the draft that season, even after winning 67 games in a championship, thanks to a timely trade two years earlier. Now that trade was paying off in a big, big way. A lot of people are asking the question, how do you improve the best team in basketball? Is Len Bias the answer to that? Well, he gives us a lot of support. He can play some guard. He can play some forward. He can play a power forward, a quick forward. That's Red Auerbach, the legendary GM of the Boston Celtics and the former coach and owner of 16 championship rings. That's right, 16. He's also the man who drafted Len Bias. He is the best athlete, in my opinion, in the whole draft and he's gonna really help this ball club. The Celtics hadn't just picked a good player, they'd secured their future. Larry Bird was just months shy of his 30th birthday. This was an era where longevity was based on how many packs of cools you smoked a day. And Kevin McHale, he had entered the league looking like he was 38 years old and played a bruising physical style of play. So the Celtics needed a jolt of energy and youth to secure their next generation of championship rings. And that was gonna be Len Bias. See, things like this just didn't happen in sports. You don't get to win a title and draft a superstar in the same year, not without cutting some sort of deal with the devil. But the point is, everyone wanted a piece of Len Bias. Even the local big shots came calling for their photo op. Tip O'Neill, Ted Kennedy, and John Kerry, a veritable holy trinity of Boston politicians, had read our back on the phone within hours, begging for their state's newest superstar to pay them a visit at the Capitol. Bias may have just become a Celtic, but he was already Beantown royalty. As a matter of fact, you know, Larry Bird said that if we draft Bias, he's going to come up to the rookie camp. <laughs> That's right. He is very, very high on Bias, as Casey was and Jimmy, and they're all high on him. He's the guy we wanted. We got him. After Len got drafted, he did what any kid on the brink of millions of dollars would do. He partied with his friends. And in the 1980s, it wasn't really a party unless you had a big old bag of cocaine. And so Len took part. He was the horse after all. What was a little bit of blow for a freak athlete like him? In fact, that was reportedly the last thing Len ever said as he leaned over for one more line. 
I'm a horse. I can take it. He never plays a game. He came to Boston, he did his press conference, and then he went back to Maryland and partied with some friends and didn't make it till the next morning. By the time the seizures started, his friends realized something was very wrong. Well, it doesn't matter what his name is, what's the problem? He's not right. Len Bias wasn't a regular cocaine user, but in the end, that didn't matter. A local success story took a tragic turn this morning. His death sent shockwaves through the league and the country. Len Bias, the Maryland University basketball star on his way to becoming a world champion Boston Celtic, died of an apparent heart attack today at Leland Memorial Hospital in Prince George's County. He wasn't the first player to use drugs, far from it. But he was the first of his stature to die from them during the age of cable TV. The media was louder and bigger than ever before. Everybody was looking for blood. Like, all right, who are we going to blame for this? He was just 22 years old. What the hell had happened? And my thought was, I get that, but this dude made the choice to do all this cocaine and it killed him. And now everyone else has to pay? You know, like, again, I'm not advocating drug use, but uh, it was just such an overreaction. Accusations were everywhere. Some claimed Len's college coaches knew about rampant drug use in the program and looked the other way. Others pointed fingers at his friends, claiming one was a campus kingpin who ran the drug network that Len got caught up in. I just thought, this is a horrible, horrible tragedy, and it felt to me like by overcompensating your you're affecting a lot of other people's lives in a very adverse way. The worst whispers, the ones that traveled the farthest and did the most damage, were that Len Bias was freebasing crack, a devastating rumor that took root and spread like wildfire. A specialist in sports medicine speculated what could have occurred. Either he was a novice who was exposed to larger doses than he could tolerate, or somebody substituted crack, a very potent form, and he thought he was getting lower doses than he was given. He wasn't using crack, but it didn't matter to most, because crack had become the racial scare word of the decade, right up there with welfare queen. Even the name of the new drug was perfect for hysterical headlines. Crack, it was the perfect drug for America, the fast food nation, an immediate rush, highly addictive, cheap, and easy to mass produce. This is the typical tiny bottle for the new illegal drug of choice in America, crack. Everything, every single news story seemed to be about crack and how it was gonna sneak into your little kid's bedroom at night and steal their innocence. Vials like this one are turning up empty and discarded in the streets, in the parks, in the schoolyards around the nation. And many of the people who use crack are turning up with blown minds and blown bank accounts and worse. With the drug trade industrializing in the early 80s, cocaine costs had started to come down to earth. Coke used to be smuggled into the country in very small batches. But thanks to the cutthroat genius of drug lord Pablo Escobar, it was now being shipped by the plane load. Even the CIA got into the game funding the insurgent right-wing Contras against Nicaragua's, quote, Marxist Sandinista government by lending a helping hand when it came to smuggling drugs into the country. But as the prices for cocaine plummeted, dealers started looking for new ways to turn a profit. And boy, did they find a gold mine. All the dealers had to do 
was convert cocaine powder into solid form with the help of a little baking soda, break up their supply into some rocks, then sell those smaller quantities for more money. A little bit of coke could turn into a lot of crack, which then turned into a lot of cash. Officials are determined to crack down on crack, herdose, the cheapest, most potent, most addictive form of cocaine ever seen in this country. So crack flooded the streets and fears about crack flooded the airwaves. Whether perception was reality or not, a divide had opened up. Coke for us and crack for them. And by us and them, I mean rich and poor, white and black. Kate Hardman knows she's not just my friend and the script supervisor for the movie I'm filming right now, but she also lived through the party world of the 70s and 80s. It was totally a totally a white, it was recreational, it was, it was a white person's drug. And I think that might have, I think when it became crack cocaine, it became a, a black person's issue. Kate remembers how a certain kind of affluent white drug user saw the writing on the wall. Cocaine was no longer cool. I think then that's when the cocaine stopped being popular too, because so, so many people that partied and did all that, they didn't really want that to be associated to what they were doing. So they switched over to other drugs. I think they switched over to, you know, like more party drugs like GHB and, you know, ecstasy, stuff that you just go dance, you know, your brains out, but not as much like addicting. Meanwhile, in 1986, income inequality was soaring and wages were flat for the majority of Americans, due in part to Republican economic policy. And the right wing needed somewhere to focus that growing anger and fear. What better place than a scary new drug being used by non-whites? This would become a go-to move for the brand new Republican Party for decades to come. Starve the working class and scapegoat towards race to redirect the anger. And if there was a master of this coded language two-step, it was one man. Today, there's a new epidemic. Ronald Reagan. Smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. And television news, which increasingly was becoming more and more about ratings and the ad revenue they generated, ate up this brand new scary story about black people and their new super drug, a drug that it cost the Celtics, the whitest team in America, their brand new superstar. What makes the death suspicious? Uh, it was unattended, very healthy young man for no apparent reason, went into cardiac arrest. They say this is a routine investigation, but it looks anything but routine and could involve administrative, if not criminal action against other Maryland athletes. Len Bias never tried crack, remember? It was regular old powder cocaine that had done him in. But it didn't matter. Enough people thought he had that it started a full-blown feeding frenzy. According to Dan Baum, author of Smoke and Mirrors, The War on Drugs and the Politics of Failure, quote, in the month following Bias's death, the networks aired 74 evening news segments about crack and cocaine, often erroneously interchanging the two substances and blithely asserting it was crack that killed Bias. Even after Maryland's chief medical examiner came out and corrected the record, stating that they had zero proof that Len was freebasing that evening, the story still continued to grow. See, if people were looking for someone to blame, a picture-perfect scapegoat, well, Washington, D.C. was happy to give them one, just in time for an election. But it wouldn't be the Republicans that would make the first move. Now, 
It would be the political party that had bet on policy and data over storytelling and narrative. The political party that had been getting their butts kicked by Republican visions of cowboys, welfare queens, and lazy bureaucrats ever since. It would be the Democrats. That's after the break. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Pressure is also coming from Congress. House Speaker Tip O'Neill is ordering his House leaders to draft a comprehensive bipartisan drug plan. If I had my way, I would take all the drug pushes, take Alcatraz, and send them there for life without the the privilege of any visitors. That was Tip O'Neill, Speaker of the House in 86, and a Boston boy born and bred. Remember that lunch he was uh, gonna have with Len Bias? the one that was scheduled for just a few days after the draft, well, it would have been a huge boom to his brand, a chance to embrace the next superstar in town, but it never happened. Instead, Tip spent the weeks following Len's death rattled. His constituents back in Boston were screaming bloody murder. If you think politics motivates people to do strange things, you haven't met a Boston sports fan. Recent pressures to do something about drug abuse intensified after the cocaine-related death of basketball star Len Bias. Something had to be done, right? And the Democratic congressman was damn sure his side was going to be the one to do it. If not for his personal stake in this situation, then for the chance to jump on the outrage horse and ride it for as many votes as it was worth. Democrats deny they're jumping on a popular bandwagon. All of us are against drugs. Republicans are just as much against it as Democrats and vice versa. This is not a partisan issue. See, the Republicans had seized the law and order throne in the 1984 election bludgeoning Democrats with it, portraying weak-kneed liberals letting criminals loose. Now, Tip O'Neill was determined not to let that happen. He called an emergency meeting the second legislators got back from their July 4th recess, demanding his caucus write up some, quote, goddamn legislation. Take it off the table for the White House, heading into the 86 election. Every committee, even ones that had nothing to do with crime and drugs, anyone with a gavel got to work. The Agriculture Committee, Education, Labor, even Ways and Means. The rush was on. And in the blink of an eye, a matter of weeks, they had come up with a new law, an omnibus bill titled the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, or as it would forever be known, the Len Bias Law. 
The bipartisan congressional plan to fight drug abuse could cost as much as $5 billion, even if it does stretch the budget. House Speaker Tip O'Neill says he believes the American people would support it. Numbers had been pulled out of thin air, hearings barely held. This was not business as usual. It was a mad dash to pass something, anything, before the election. And when the Republicans finally got a look at it, they must have been fighting back laughter. The Democrats had walked right into their talking points. And the Republicans would respond to the bill the way they would respond every time since in the decades that followed. They said it wasn't conservative enough. And the Dems did what they would always do. They caved. So there was a last minute change devised by a bunch of Democratic senators, including Joe Biden, and it was tossed into the bill without any due diligence, a mandatory sentencing provision. This bill is important, it's essential. Cut back any, I assume if anything, there'll be more money next year. Setting up a new structure on the fly for how long drug offenders would serve. We have broken new ground, and for the first time, we have a national strategy. A person who sells drugs to children, there should be no mercy on them. But the effects of this change would be felt for generations to come in America. Today, it gives me great pleasure to sign legislation that reflects the total commitment of the American people and their government to fight the evil of drugs. I mean, the 1986 Drug Abuse Act, uh, that passed, I got the number here. It passed the House 392 votes to 16. You know, it passed the Senate on a voice vote. That's Rick Perlstein, the American historian and journalist. He still can't believe how the entire government got behind this devastating bill. This was the one that created the uh, 100 to 1 uh, sentencing disparity between uh, crack cocaine and powder cocaine. I mean, this is the stuff that's universally understood to have just decimated African-American communities in America. While the goal may have been to impose longer prison sentences on high-level dealers, the numbers didn't match reality. Five grams of crack meant five years in prison. One one one-hundredth the amount of powder cocaine it would take to trigger the same sentencing. Police and prosecutors weren't getting to the bottom of the drug trade. They were prosecuting people at the bottom of it. You know who I am. Snake. Dealing in weed, coke, crack. Your choice. Public service announcements like that on TV didn't exactly help. Take one hit and you'll do anything to cop more. Steal from your mama, lie, cheat on your homeboys. But hey, that's the price you pay when you deal with dudes like me. And it was all about scapegoating African-Americans who were medicating themselves against the trauma of, you know, basically their communities collapsing around them because the government was withdrawing its support. The results of this scapegoating were devastating. It's not just the federal government, right? When the federal government, you know, withdraws 87% of their funding, that has to be made up for by city services or not at all. So the city can't spend money on something else, right? Uh, And it's just this cascade. A 2006 report by the ACLU determined that while African-Americans made up only 15% of the country's drug users, they were 74% of those sentenced to prison for drug offenses. Over 80% of the defendants sentenced for crack offenses were African-American at the time, despite 66% of crack users being white or Hispanic. The sad fact is, while the bill may have been known as the Len Bias Law, it had little to do with the reality of his death. While Democrats pushed the bill for political purposes, Republicans saw a chance to take it even further. 
Ronald Reagan, well, he signed it into law, getting the claim credit too. Everyone in Washington had their fingerprints on this thing, the proud parents of the prison industrial complex. We'll be right back. As politicians were preaching just say no, the NBA was frantically following suit. There's one thing we all know. There's only one way to solve a complicated systemic issue. You get the Showtime Lakers together in a room and you record a rap song. In 1983, the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the league had added a three strikes and you're out policy. Test positive for drugs enough times and you could be banned for life. And remember, this was a mostly black league trying to cater to white television audiences. They weren't about to let the specter of drugs get in the way. Not anymore. The players themselves understood what was at stake. They had seen players like Chris Washburn, David Thompson, Terry Furlow, and now Len Bias lose their careers and for some their lives to drugs. But now NBA television revenues and licensing deals were causing salaries to skyrocket. What was once a nice payday was quickly becoming generational wealth. The average NBA salary in 1985 was about $370,000 per year. 10 years later, it was $1.5 million, with the highest paid player in the league, one Michael Jeffrey Jordan, making 20 times that. I'm Michael Jordan. McDonald's restaurants have given me this time to talk to you about something we both really care about. And as the new face of the NBA, Michael Jordan had a responsibility to record a PSA about the dangers of drugs that also was a McDonald's ad. So don't blow it. Don't do drugs. If you're doing it, stop it. But for the bottom rung, the inner city kids just barely getting by, a war was coming. A war designed to make their lives a living hell. As columnist Radley Balco wrote in the Washington Post, quote, in life, Len Bias was a terrific basketball player. In death, he would become the Archduke Ferdinand of the total war on drugs. What came before had only been skirmishing. The real drug war had yet to begin. Within weeks, the country would be marching, bayonets fixed. Len Bias died of a drug overdose. As a result, generations of men who looked like him were thrown in jail. What could have been? Would Jordan still have won six rings? Would Jordan Bias have become bigger than Magic Bird? Those are easy questions, fun ones to debate with friends over beers. But there are darker questions that are worth pondering too. Between 1986 and 2016, the federal prison population more than quadrupled. A black man in America today has a more than one in four chance of ending up behind bars. America has more people in prison than any other country in the world. And those are raw numbers, not per capita. Len Bias wasn't the only one who lost his life that night back in 1986. There were generations of black men that did too. They just didn't know it yet. How many millions of people missed out on making their dreams come true because they were locked up behind bars? 
How many more futures were lost thanks to five grams of crack cocaine tucked into a pocket or a backpack or a fist? We've talked a lot about the players we've lost on this podcast, famous names, some more than others, were tragically taken from us for a whole host of reasons, sad stories each and every one. But if you really want to look for a lost generation of young men with the potential to change the game and the world, but also artists, politicians, doctors, fathers, churchgoers, husbands, friends, well, you might want to start by looking in a 48-square-foot cell. There's plenty of them in this country. 24 people indicted after a months-long investigation. Today we're here to announce a major roundup of street-level drug dealers. Residents are now complaining that police are using unfair strong-arm tactics. According to the Florida Sheriff's Association, the operation sends a message to street-level dealers and buyers. Use crack and you're going to jail. Lieutenant, how long is it going to be before some other sellers are back here at this location tonight? I'll give you a conservative estimate of maybe uh, a couple hours. Death at the Wing is a hyperobject and three uncanny four production. I'm your host and executive producer, Adam McKay. Jody Avergan is our executive producer and story editor. Raghu Manavalan is our senior producer. Brian Steele is our producer. We got booking help from Catherine Shoemaker. Our assistant producer is Shane McKeon. Archival research from Jason Helig. Fact-checking from Will Tavlin. We got legal help from Allison Sherry. Nuna Sharafuddin is our production manager. Very special thanks to Stacey Robert Steele. This show is mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Music composition by Beacon Street. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson at HyperObject and Laura Mayer at 3 Uncanny 4. If you like this series, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show. And make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us and it helps others discover the show. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments about this show, send us an email. We'll be doing a bonus episode at the end of the series, talking about more stories and answering your questions. Our email address is datw at hyperobjectindustries.com. That's D-A-T-W for death at the wing at hyperobjectindustries, all one word, dot com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ghost Panther, or you can reach us by sending a letter through the estate of George Mikan. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death at the Wing.